Thank you. <laughs> First John chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. Some of you may know that there is a billboard war going on in Times Square right now between a biblical creation group and an atheist group. The, the billboard by you know, the creation group says, to all of our atheist friends, thank God you're wrong. And the one by the atheist group says, who needs Christ during Christmas? Nobody. You know, their digital boy actually crossed out Christ and Christmas and called it Xmas. You see, believers often get caught up in these road to nowhere debates with unbelievers. And personally, the faceless and the personal ones are the worst because you have no personal contact with people. And, and I believe, as believers, we, we should not use the Advent season the same way politicians use election season. And we know how politicians use election season. During election time, they're your best friend. During election time, they have town hall meetings, meetings so they can hear your concerns. During election season, they're out in the community. They're shaking hands with the people. But we all know what's really behind the facade. It's election time, so they're your friends during election time. As believers, are we treating our unbelieving and friends and neighbors the same way politician treats us during Christian during election season? Do we use the Christian season as just one way to connect with them? During the other times of the year, we say nothing to them, but during Christmas, we tell them about Jesus. We say we love them. We have billboards to, to say, thank God they're wrong. That's not loving them well. And they can see through the facade, just like we can see through the facade of politicians. One author says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Now, when I read that, I was offended by it. I was like, how is that the case? And he says, those who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, Walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Every believer, every believer struggles with that. Even I struggle with that. But Christmas, again, is a reminder that Christ came because our lifestyles don't always match up with what we believe. And we all, and all you know that's true. Our lifestyles don't always match up with what we believe. And if we're going to love the non-believer then it's going to take a love that does not come from us to do it. Christ brought hope, peace, joy, and love into this broken world. And those who have it by seven faith, they can't lose it. And we've talked about hope and we talked about peace. Today we're going to talk about love. God's love for us. Because if you don't understand that, if you don't embrace that, then you're not going to be able to love people, to extend that love to people, particularly those who consider you a threat, particularly those who consider you intolerant, particularly those who consider you old-fashioned. You're not going to be able to love those people if you don't have and embrace God's love for you. So if you have your Bible, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Behold, let us love one another, for love is from God, 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your truth, Father, we desperately, as always, we need the Holy Spirit, the third person in the Trinity. We need him to come and move in our hearts. We need him to come and move in the hearts of our neighbors. We need him to come and do what he can do. He's the one who changes things. He's the one who changes hearts and lives. He's the one who takes the gospel and the word and applies it to our hearts. Not us. Not us. We're not the Holy Spirit. We're not part of the Godhead. We are recipients of mercy, Lord. That's all we are. That's all we're ever going to be. That's all I am. And that's okay. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will come and move my pride and my need for man's approval and all those things to the side, Lord, and let Jesus be glorified. Let him be lifted up, Lord, in this place. And you will give us a word that will penetrate the core of our hearts and that you will lead us out to be the people God called us to be in your power. So we call upon you, Holy Spirit, to come. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The first thing we want to talk about today is, what does it mean to say that God is love? What does that mean? The reason that God is love, it says, because God, the reason love, excuse me. The reason love is from God because God is love. And with that phrase, God is love, John highlights the truth that love is part of God's nature. It's part of his character. It's just not something he does. It's one of his attributes. It's part of his being. Because he himself is love, that means we are not the foundation of love. We have to understand that. The reason that the non-believer is able to love is because that non-believer is created in whose image? God's. God's. Even the, even the non-believer who hates God is still creating God's image. And so everything that person can do can love, can have a good marriage, can have a good family. The reason that can happen is because that person is creating God's image. That's what believers know. So God is the foundation of love, the foundation of all things. Everything we think is beautiful all comes from God. One pastor says, the foundation of God's love to sinful men lies not in us, not in anything about us, not in anything external to God himself. He and he alone is the cause and the reason, the motive, the end of his own love to our world. He is. That is God's love. God is God-centered. And that his love is also God-centered. He loves himself most of all. But that love, as Piper says, spills out onto unworthy people. Think about that. His love spills out onto unworthy people like us. 
like me. And Christ coming in the incarnation was the start of that love being spilled out. That's what Christmas is about. God spilling out his love onto mankind. Not, again, not onto people who were his friends now. Spilling out his love onto his enemies. This is something we often forget when we become Christians. Well, we weren't always God's friend. We have to always be reminded of that his love came to meet his enemy. Not to meet his friend. Not to me who was in the family. Not to me who was on the friends, but someone who hated him. That's the love he spilled on him. To enemies. Those who said crucify him. For me, I think we all have the struggle when we become Christians. We, we soon develop a sense of entitlement. I mean, I know I have seen that in my own walk where I begin to think I am worthy of his love. I am. I'm going to begin to drink my own self-righteous Kool-Aid. And thinking, yeah, God, God should save me. God should love me. And the way this shows up is that we can easily pass judgment on people who we deem to be unworthy. We pass judgment on other people because of certain lifestyles they lead, because they're not like us. And we soon forget we deserve the same judgment. And it's only by his mercy that you don't get it. That's it. I'm, I'm, only go, I'm always going to be an unworthy recipient of God's love. And the same is for you. When a sinner repents, he's still going to be an unworthy recipient of God's love. Because it's grace. It's mercy. It's never based on what we do. And that goes against who we are as Americans. Because we think we are, we, when we work hard enough, we deserve certain things. That's the way of our culture. But the kingdom is anti that. The kingdom is anti that. It's not what you do, but it's a God who gave for you that makes you right. In chapter um, one of, uh, of this book, John says, But this is the message we have heard from the beginning and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness. In the beginning of 1 John, John tells us that God is light, and now here in verse chapter 4, he's telling us that God is love. Which is it? Because when you say God is light, that means he's just. That means he's holy. He can have nothing to do with sin, which is darkness. And now in verse 4, he's like, well, God is now love. How do you reconcile those? Which is it? He's both. Both and, not either or. And here's where you have to think about it. God is never unequal in his attributes like we are. He's all those things at one time. All, he's 100% holy, 100% just, 100% mercy at all times. If, we, if I had a measuring cup right here of God's attributes, they'll all be filled to the top. And he's like that all the time. Us, it's like this. I'm loving sometimes, and I'm hateful sometimes. I'm, it's, I'm never at equal. I'm never balanced because that's, we're, we're sinful. But God is all those things at the same time. That's why he's God. He's never unbalanced. He's never unequal. And so we got to realize that when we talk about God, he can be just and holy and merciful and loving all at the same time. And he never contradicts himself because he's God. He's on a whole different level than you and I. He's infinite. We're finite. He's eternal. We're not. He's God, 
we're man, he's creator, we're creation. And that's where it's always going to be. And what it also means, he sets the standard for how life should flow in his creation. We don't. We don't. In his commentary on 1 John, Vernon McGee recites a conversation that a pastor had with a highly intelligent lady who prided herself on her intelligence. She told the pastor, I have no use for the Bible, for Christian superstition and religious dogma. dogma. It's enough for me to know that God is love. That's all she thought she needed to know. The pastor said, well, do you know it? She says, well, of course I do. She said, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that God is love. The pastor goes on to ask the lady, uh, if people in India knew that God is love. He asks her if the tribes in the jungle of Africa knew that God is love. Perhaps not, she said. But in a civilized land, we all know it. And that is how we know it, he said. That is how you know it, he said. Who told us that? Where did it come from? How did we find it out? The lady was now confused by these questions. I do not understand what you mean, she said. I've always known it. But the pastor boldly told her, no one in the world has ever known it until it was revealed from heaven. Recorded in the word of God. It is here and nowhere else. It is only found in God's word, not in any literature of the ancients. You see, civilized folk like us think we deserve it. Civilized folks like us think we always know that God, why shouldn't God love America? Why shouldn't God love us? We're Americans. Why shouldn't God love me? How do you know it? John 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Emmanuel is the way that we know it. God incarnate is how we know that God is love. Revealed in the scriptures of his word, that's how we know it. That's the only way we're ever going to know it. For God manifested his love in us through his son. Verses 9 and 10. I need a big print Bible. It's starting. And the land, and this the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. In this love, and this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In this the love of God was manifested. And that, again, is a passive statement by John. And whenever you sometimes hear passive statements in Scripture, that's pointing you to the fact that God is the one who's doing the action, not us. God is. We did not make God show Christ. We did not make God send Christ. His free, sovereign choice was the reason why he sent his only son and manifested his love among us. It means that we were revealed. It was demonstrated. And God is love. It's not just in talk and word, but it's in deed and in truth. Realize that. It's just not love. That's not God's love. You is not just lyrics in a song. It's not just words in a poem. It's not just something you read about in theological books, but it's real. It's a fact. It's a reality. It's truth. It has been spilled out upon you 
through His Son. That's how you get it. He alone manifested it. And apart from Him, there is no manifestation of it. He sent His only Son into the world that we might live through Him. What does that mean? That's the incarnation. That is Christmas. Christmas is a demonstration of God's love for unworthy people. His only begotten Son into a fallen, broken, sinful world that He may die. I've been saying this ever since we started Advent season. The incarnation always has in view the cross. The end in mind, and the end is the cross. The end is Calvary. He was born for that. That's what he came for. The incarnation is a demonstration of God's love and also the cross. And this word, propitiation, propitiation for our sins, that's a fancy word that means that God, Christ satisfied God's wrath toward you. That's what that word means. Because we don't, we sometimes, again, we forget that we were under his wrath. <laughs> you realize that, right? Before you became a believer, you were under God's wrath. That means if you were to die, you would have been under his wrath if you didn't know Christ. So Christ came to satisfy that. That he wasn't just going to put it to the side because he's just. He still had to punish sin. Something had to satisfy the wrath towards sin. It's either going to be my blood or Jesus' blood. So Jesus satisfied that. And so what that means, that when you come to know Christ, his wrath has been removed from you. Do you understand that? You're no longer under it. You're no longer under it. You have been saved from it. Because Christ took the curse. He took the punishment in your place. And that again is love. That again is love. Saved from God's wrath. That is the atonement. One Christian said, the Christian affirmation that God is love is not sustained by ignoring the cross, but by setting it in the forefront of the situation. The forefront of the situation. The cross. You have to keep the incarnation of the cross together. Side by side. His suffering on the cross was a display of his love for you and also judgment for sin. Both at the same time. Know that. The cross, you have love and justice being on display at the same time. Justice for sin and love for you. Because it's not you dying there. It's your substitute. Your substitute in your place. And this is the message of hope. This is what we take to the lost world. This is, what, this is the gospel we bring to people. Everybody's under God's wrath. Not just those who practice certain sexual sins. All of us are. If you don't know him, and that same hope that we have, we extend to the world. That Christ came to be your substitute. That's what he came to be. 
That's what Christmas is about. And that is love. And that is the love that you have to embrace daily as a believer. That Christ saved you from God's wrath. And now you are a son or daughter. And that's love. Do you rest in that? Do you embrace that? Do you look at the incarnation and the cross as evidence of God's love to you? Does his love give you a strong sense of belonging and acceptance and assurance and security? Does it? In his study on this passage, Tim Keller says, he says, many people look at their outward circumstances to determine if God loves them. You say things like, God doesn't love me because blank. What would you put in that blank today? If you think God doesn't love you, what do you put in the blank to, to, to determine that? Why doesn't God love you? Please know that question assumes you already you were you think you deserve the love anyway. Why don't you think God loves you? Is because life is hard, or because your finances are tight, or because you're having family issues? What is it that's going on in your life to make you think God doesn't love you? My kids aren't turning like turning out the way I like them to be. I'm not married. My marriage is awful. I don't like my job. I don't have the money I want. I can't find a job. What are those things in your life that you are pointing to that says, because this is happening, God does not like me. God does not love me now. The reverse of that is that you think because your circumstances are good, that's proof that he does love you. Because I have these material things, then God loves me. Our circumstances are like feelings. As Keller says, they are up and down like the seasons. They are up and down like the seasons. And we have to understand that God's love for us is not based on our circumstances. They're not. Here's the thing. All parents here this morning, if you're a good parent, you love your child. You love your child. But your love does not promise them a pain-free life. You cannot guarantee that. And if you tell them that, that is a lie. You love them with all your heart, but you, your love will not promise them a pain-free, easy life. That they're going to go through life without pain because you love them. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. I wish it was true. But we know it's not. And God's love for us does not promise us the same thing either. He loves us, but it ain't going to be a, mean we're going to have a pain-free life without things to work through. We're going to go through stuff. Good circumstances are not tokens of God's love, and bad circumstances are not tokens that, that prove that he doesn't love you. The only tokens of God's love for you are the incarnation and the cross. That's it. That's proof enough. But you got to have faith to believe it. What else can he give you? What else can he do to show you that he loves you? He sent his only son to die a death that I should die. What other proof do we need? There is no other proof. Because if that doesn't, if that's not enough proof, there's nothing else I can tell you. 
Because I, I, I'm not getting up on the cross for you. I love you. But my death ain't going to take away your sin. My death ain't going to make you holy. My death ain't going to make you right with God. There's only one's life that can make you right with God. And he's already given it. He's already given it. That's Christ. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We don't believe that. We don't believe that. And unbelievers know it. We don't live that way. We live like atheists. The same atheists we look down upon, that's how we live. We live as if there is no God, and they see it. We say we do, but when life gets hard, it shows what we really believe. It shows we really don't believe in. The prayer we need to pray is, God, give me the faith to believe. Help my unbelief is what we need to pray. Help my unbelief. Help me to believe that all your love and affection is already on me. I already have it. And you will see me through my struggles. If you doubt God's love and affection for you this morning, then you need to look at the table. I love this table. It's always a reminder to us that God is for us. It should be. I want you to look at it. This table, this communion table, is a reminder of God's grace to you, his favor to you, in spite of you. If you don't even believe it today, it's still true. This table is not about you, but it's for you. It's for all of us. Because we all need it. We all need encouragement. It's a reminder of God's tokens, tokens of his love. It's a reminder of the cross, this table, what Christ did for us. Christ, who, who did not count himself equal with God, but made himself nothing. Think about that. He made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and been found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Why? To take away your sin. To rescue you. That's my sister saying, to rescue you from your sins. Nothing else can do that. No other God can do that. There's nothing else you can do to rescue you from your sins. Only Christ alone can do that. But do you believe it? But do you believe it? This table is for all those who have been baptized, all those who have received Christ and saving faith. That means you have, you trusted him for your salvation. That means you are willing to confess and turn from your sins. And it also means you are a member of a congregation that proclaim the gospel. Neighbors and friends, if you don't know Christ, I'm glad you're here today. I thank God you're worshiping with us. But I ask you to watch what we do. Watch and observe what we do here because it's a display of our unity in Christ. And if you are, if something is tugging at your heart, and you have questions about what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to have saving faith in Jesus? 
please come talk to me after the service and I'll share with you the good news of hope, the good news of salvation. Please do that. Adults, we, we ask that the kids with you abstain from the elements until they've been admitted to the table by a church that you attend and we leave that to your oversight. And this is my favorite part because it's for our little babies. My little babies and your little babies. I want you to watch this table. Watch what we do here because it is our prayer that one day each of you will be able to take communion with us. This is what your parents pray about. This is what your elders pray about. And so it's a reminder of what Christ did for you on the cross. He went there to take away your sin. And this table is a reminder of you of that. So watch and observe what we do today. Please join me in prayer. Father, I call upon the Holy Spirit to come and prepare our hearts to take communion today. I ask that you will work in each of our hearts. You know what we're dealing with. You know our fears, our burdens, our frustrations. You know our pride and things that think that we worship, our idols. We need you to penetrate those things, Lord, through your word and by your spirit. Meet us today. Use this communion, Lord, to strengthen us spiritually, to strengthen us in you. Give us a deeper insurance, a, deep, a deeper confidence in who you are, knowing that God is for us, who, who can be against us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.